Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news and analysis podcast produced by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greatest challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Bryan, and I'm an editor here in our newsroom in central Moscow. This week on the program, Russia is mourning Ludmila Alexieva, the matriarch of Russia's human rights movement. At 91, Grandma Luda knew the trials and tribulations of life in the Soviet Union and under the current regime. But she was always upbeat. What she taught me was to retain optimism, knew what, uh, what the circumstances are, and to be very daring. We'll be speaking with Tanya Lokshina of Human Rights Watch here in Russia about Alexieva's life and her work. And later, something stinks. Protests are erupting across the country over Russia's broken waste management system. The government says it's ready to tackle the overflowing landfills throughout the country, but critics say their solution might only make matters worse. The right that Russians felt has been most violated by the authorities this year has been their environmental safety. That's a pretty big change from talking about free elections or democratic initiatives. We'll be joined in the studio by Moscow Times reporter Evan Gershkovich, who has been reporting this story since the protests erupted earlier this year. First up, Russia's most prominent human rights defender, Ludmila Alexieva, was commemorated in Moscow this week. She was 91 years old. Alexieva was a driving force behind the civil rights movement in the Soviet Union, and she helped found the country's oldest human rights organization, the Moscow Helsinki Group. Joining us on the line is Tanya Lokshina, the Associate Director of Human Rights Watch based in Moscow. Tanya knew Alexieva personally and wrote a moving tribute to her in the Moscow Times this week. Tanya, you described... Ludmila as the matriarch of Russia's human rights. What was Alexieva like? Oh, she was an amazing person. And, you know, the way I met her was actually quite peculiar. While in graduate school, I had the honor of working for the local branch of the Andrei Sakharov Archives. That is uh, the place of uh, archived materials and Soviet descent. And naturally, Alexeyeva was one of the gods and heroes of Soviet descent. And as a graduate student, I used to fill out all those little archival forms and go through materials peppered with a name. And I never expected to meet in person. Because to me, at that time, back in the 90s, as a graduate student in the United States, she was a part of amazing, scary, and glorious history of Soviet descent. And then it so happened that I relocated to Russia in 1998 at the time of this profound financial crisis. And I was just desperately, frantically looking for something to do. And I heard on the grapevine that the Moscow Helsinki group was looking for someone who was fluent in English and knew a thing or two about human rights. And uh, they kind of hired me on the spot. I should say that Miss Alexeva hired me on the spot. And what did she teach you personally about, about, about working in the human rights sphere in, in Russia? What she taught me, I think was to retain optimism, knew what, uh, what the circumstances are, and to be very daring. I 
think that for myself and a few other younger people who were at that time in the core team of the Moscow Helsinki group, she did something pretty amazing by giving us tasks that, frankly, they were probably not competent to implement. But the way she did it so lightheartedly and so kind of, you can do it, made us become continent and actually get it done. Well, what she wanted to happen at the time, what she in fact accomplished, and I was honored to be part of that process, was to pull together all sorts of smallish local rights groups and activists completely disjoint in different regions of Russia into a tight-knit network into a proper countrywide rights movement. And the way she went about it was rooted, in fact, in the tradition of the Soviet human rights movement. Hmm. She got all those different groups and individuals to gather data about abuses of human rights in their respective regions and then would use that data to draft comprehensive reports on the state of human rights in the entire country. Working with that information and producing quality reports was a very tall order, but, you know, the way she handed those tasks over to her core younger staff was like, yeah, this is it. You got to do it. You know, you can do it. And we got it done. Tell us a little bit about her relationship with the authorities. She was often, for instance, photographed alongside Vladimir Putin. And, of course, he attended her memorial service on on Tuesday. Yes, indeed. The president of the Russian Federation attended her memorial service on Tuesday. And uh, it was quite an experience, really, one for the first two hours of the memorial service. No one was allowed to make a speech, to say anything to commemorate her, because the president was supposed to come, and it was the memorial of waiting for the president almost, <laughs> as opposed to uh, Ludmila Alexeyeva's memorial. Now there are lots of uh, angry outcries in social media from people who worked with Ludmila Alexeyeva, who really appreciated her role in Russia's human rights movement, about how the authorities misused her and had been doing that during the last, I don't know, many how years of her life, and even used her in death. And while I understand where these people are coming from, I cannot help but emphasize that Ludmila was no fool. Did she know that she was being used? Oh, yes but she was using them at the same time. Hmm. And in her opinion, using them was so important that, yeah, she did give them the pleasure of being used. But And she was still the winner. Because by having those meetings with Putin while she was alive, by having Putin pay her a visit on her 90th birthday, she was able as opposed to many others, to push some asks. Hmm. And am I trying to say that all of her asks and recommendations were taken up 
by the Kremlin and were actually implemented. Well, no, of course not. Russia would have been a very different country if that had been the case. But she managed to save quite a few lives. Hmm. And she managed to make a difference on certain issues. And that's a very pragmatic and a very effective approach, especially in the given hostile political climate. In your column for the Moscow Times, you wrote that Ludmila was always an optimist. You wrote that she would always say, we won back then and we will win again. Do you share her optimism about Russia today? It's very difficult to remain truly optimistic. Ludmila, on the other hand, had had the experience of living in a totalitarian state and doing human rights work in a totalitarian state. And that kept her going when in contemporary Russia, the direction changed on the human rights front and things started looking pretty grim, but again, not as grim as under the Soviets by far. So I think it's more difficult for me and other people my age that worked on human rights in Russia, together with Ludmila, to be as optimistic as she was. But trying to retain that optimism was something that we definitely learned from her. And we are trying. Do I believe that Russia is going to be a much better place in two or three years from now? Uh, Unfortunately, I don't. But do I genuinely believe that Russia will eventually become a better place and overcome the current unprecedented human rights crisis. Yes, I totally believe that. And this is something that Ludmilla believed in just as well. Tanya, thanks very much for taking the time to be with us today. It was my pleasure. Earlier this year, thousands of residents of Volokolamsk, a town outside Moscow, took to the streets. But they weren't protesting corruption, rigged elections, or President Putin. They were demonstrating against a landfill. Residents in the town said that noxious gases coming from the dump had left 60 children in hospital, and enough was enough. But it wasn't just Volokolamsk. Towns and cities throughout the country have been up in arms for months now over Russia's struggling waste management system. Joining us in the studio is Moscow Times reporter Evan Gershkovich, who has been reporting this story since protests first erupted in Volokolamsk in March. Evan, are we talking about a few overflowing landfills, or what exactly is the scope of the problem? Basically, for years now, uh, cities all over Russia, and especially Moscow, have been dumping their trash outside of the city. Uh, They've been using Soviet-era landfills that have basically been overflowing. There's also hasn't been a standardized waste sorting system in Russia for all these years, so basically everything has been going in these landfills. In As Moscow has grown, these landfills have basically overflowed. Residents of these towns basically, as you said, said enough is enough. They began protesting because the, you know, it touched their children, it touched them. There were, when I went over there in March, there were... Tavolikolamsk. Tavolikolamsk, yeah. It's a couple hours, it's basically a couple hours outside of the city. And uh, you can, you know, you can feel that, you can actually, it's weird because you feel the smell at the back of your throat when you're there. It's that rancid and adults had rashes too so it was pretty you know it's it's pretty visible it's understandable why it became such a 
hot topic. So is the whole country up in arms about this or how many people are we actually talking about coming out onto the streets here? Well, in the spring, it was basically uh, about 10 to 15 towns around Moscow. There was basically at that time 15 landfills that were really overstrained. And so Volokolamsk was the sharpest uh, problem because you would see, you know, several dozen children were really sick. But there were hundreds of people in various towns around throughout in March. Uh, and Volokolamsk got to over a thousand. And to put in perspective, this is a pretty small town. Right. Uh, so that, you know, protesters there would tell me that there were between 10% and 30% of the people in the town would be out on a Saturday or a Sunday protesting yeah. in front of the actual dump in, in town. Uh, the protests sort of calmed down over the summer as uh, the authorities started shutting these landfills down. But then the protests started popping up elsewhere in Russia, regions a little further outside of Moscow and as far as Arhangelsk in the north, which is 1,200 kilometers away. And the protests there have been quite a bit bigger. They have been quite a bit bigger. Uh, They were building steadily from the summer into the fall and on December 2nd, uh, about a week and a half ago, protesters say, the organizers say that about 30,000 people across something like 45, 46 towns in the region came out that day. The governor says seven to 8,000 came out. So even if you take the conservative estimate, big number of people came out to protest. Trash. Okay, so now this, the authorities say they have a solution, and, and part of the solution is is shutting down the landfills. But what else are they talking about? What other solutions are they talking about implementing here? Right, so the reason the protests have sort of moved away from the Moscow region and further out and north is that in the summer and in the fall, ecological environmental activists started noticing what seemed to be hints of new landfills, uh, deep in forests, forests were being cleared. Uh, bulldozers were going in, trucks would be, you know, flying down roads. In Kalugo, a region some 250 kilometers outside of Moscow, and Arhangelsk and all these other places, and the authorities were quite about what the actual plans were. In mid-October, uh, Arhangelsk officials actually announced that what would be going on there is not a landfill, but something they called an echo techno park. So, a really nice sounding word. Sounds eco techno park. Yeah, and very green. Very green. And in and in Moscow, they would be building eco clusters, also very green, very nice sounding. Where basically what would be going on is that the tra- Moscow's trash would no longer be directed to landfills. It would be compressed up into bales. Those bales would be sent by rail up north or to these other regions where they would then be put in these echo techno parks. It sounds very good. They didn't give many details about this plan, what actually would happen to the trash later. They didn't say much about the environmental safety of it. They didn't They didn't give many details about the project. And uh, because they were mum on details through the summer and into the fall, as activists were discovering this stuff, it all looked much more sordid than it really was in some sense. We're still pretty unclear on details because the authorities haven't given much. What we know is mostly come from Russian investigative journalists and activists digging up other details. Right. And this this system of, of bailing trash um, is 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 used in, in in Europe at the moment, but the trash that is bailed is 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 eventually processed in in some way or another. Is that right? But in Russia, the proposal is, as far as activists understand, is just to basically store it. Exactly. So indefinitely. Right. So there is a Swedish company that has been creating this technology for about twenty five years. It's called Flexus Ballast System. Uh, I spoke with the company this week, and they basically said that uh, most of their clients throughout Europe have 
you know, they, they take this trash, they bail it into these polyethylene sacks that uh, what the company claims is that they suck out all the carbon dioxide from there so there's no uh, waste breakdown, so the noxious gases won't be released upon opening the sacks, and that the sacks keep everything in. They claim it's fully safe, but these clients typically will transfer the waste to some storage facility, store it for one to two to three years, then, you know, as the bandwidth allows them, they will process it in either processing plants or actually waste energy plants in some of the more advanced countries. This would be in in Germany and in actually in Sweden, this is happening. But the company also said they have a client in South Korea that has been storing this waste for 15 years and, you know, just started incinerating it this year. They said they don't recommend this tact, but they they also said, you know, we think it's perfectly safe. So if the Russian authorities go this route, we don't think this is actually going to be a problem. Th- th- that won't satisfy activists in the least because what they see this as is basically a band-aid solution to the problem. They're right. not actually addressing the root issue here. Which is? Which is basically that Russia, broadly speaking, has never had you know waste sorting uh, in Russian homes. Everything- We're talking about separating glass from plastic... Everything, exactly, yes. So basically, no, you know, there's no sink uh, uh, disposal units, right, where food waste could go. There is no, yeah, basically everything goes in one bin. You put your plastics, your metals, everything in there, and you dump it. Partly this is interesting because it's not that Russians don't want to be doing this. It's that it's quite difficult because much of the sorting work is done by activists. So they'll place, you know, they'll, they'll collect bins in certain neighborhoods where, you know, residents could go and do the sorting themselves, or they have come up with eco-taxis, these systems where they'll go pick up the trash. But it puts a lot of onus on residents to do this. Or private initiatives. Or private initiatives, exactly. And, right, so the the claim from many of these people, uh, what residents in our Hungus were saying when they came out into the streets was, you know, Moscow address this problem, don't bring trash here. We, you know, this is a pretty easy thing to do much of the world has figured out that you can recycle and sort waste and we don't need to spend huge sums of money on creating this whole new set of infrastructure when we could you know put that money towards putting bins and containers in every neighborhood maybe coming up with a sustainable solution exactly maybe let's let's uh let's go back to the protests for a Mm -hmm. moment or two Thirty thousand people in Arkhangelsk that's a lot of people and of course protests throughout the moscow region and, and and throughout the country in general is there is there a political opportunity for the opposition here to galvanize some of this uh unhappiness over over how the russian authorities are failing to 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 address the, the core of the problem is 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 this something that the opposition could rally could rally around it's interesting because the opposition seems to want to at least at a protest in outside of Moscow this Sunday uh, where some Mo- Muscovites and actually a representative from Arhangelsk who flew down and people from around the Moscow region gathered to protest this plan. There was a uh, an aide to opposition politician Alexei Navalny, Dmitry Gutkov, uh, who's been a longtime sort of opposition figure, has released a big website you know, protesting the, these sorts of plans. Ilya Yashin has been speaking out on environmental issues, so they seem to sort of be galvanizing around this. But at that Moscow protest, there were about a hundred people, hmm. um, and for it, and our Hungus isn't as visible. So, for it really to work, it seems like they need to get Moscow to care about this issue. But it could be a clever strategy by authorities by you know getting this trash far away into our Hungus in the far north. Muscovites are like, okay, so <laughs> you know, solved. yeah, it's the bear in far north. <laughs> right? Why do we care about this? And so you know, you have thirty thousand people on a Hungus, a hundred people in Moscow. 
That said, uh, a pre- the Presidential Human Rights Council this last month in November released a poll where the right that Russians felt has been most violated by the authorities this year has been their environmental safety. Hmm. That's a pretty big change from talking about free elections or right. you know, democratic initiatives. So the fact that these opposition politicians are trying to go this route does seem to hold some weight. It's actually interesting because the Navalny aide was telling me, you know, we have all these campaign headquarters around the country that we set up for this failed presidential run in 2018. We need to do something with them. And so in our Hanglis, he was actually talking on the phone with a couple organizers who had worked on the presidential campaign and now helped galvanize 30,000 there. And he said, you know, we're working on a campaign. So I think it's something to watch whether it's successful or not. You know, protests in Russia often don't lead to huge change, and the authorities seem to be barreling ahead with this plan regardless. Thank you very much for taking the time to be in the studio with us today, Evan. Thanks, Jonathan. Was this episode five? This is episode five. It's good to finally be on. I've been waiting for (laughs) this moment. It's been a long time coming. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again. (laughs) And of course, you can read Evan's full report on the Moscow Times website. And to finish off, a Russian priest in Tver made headlines this week. Not for his rising sermons or charitable works. Nope, it was the priest's Instagram account that has raised eyebrows and caused a ruckus on social media. Vyacheslav Baskakov's Instagram posts flaunted expensive clothes, including a Louis Vuitton handbag and Gucci sandals. The Orthodox Church said it was opening an investigation and the scandal ballooned. Baskakov was quick to issue an apology. I will pay penitence and close Instagram, he said, since I do not know how to behave modestly or adequately. But that wasn't going to stop Twitter from having the last laugh. Here are a couple of our favorite reader responses to the story. God's servant, but a slave to fashion. Meet Russia's blingiest priest and his mercies. And this small human drama has all the makings of a modern-day Chekhov story. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. I'm Jonathan Bryan. Our producer today was Piotr Sauer, and thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News. (laughs) 